Well, it's so crazy out there. It's almost like it's raining. Isn't it weird? It's like so weird. I was realizing a while back, like a uh, couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, like the clouds were over, darkening clouds, and I was just realizing how I don't even take them seriously anymore. I just like, <laughs> I just go, yeah, whatever, you know, fool me once, shame on you, you know, fail me twice. Uh, it was like, I came out of church last night, and there was actually moisture, and they were so weird. It's like, what is going on? But um, anyway, a blessing to be sure. So uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching. If you didn't catch before, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, we're going to be uh, uh, continuing our series today. So in, inside your program is green and white message note sheet. You'll definitely want to take that out. Um, and, uh, and then we're going to pray and get going. You guys ready to go? Let's do it. Okay, I'm excited. Lord, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your uh, Holy Spirit who gives us life, who wakes us up, who trains us, who motivates us, who equips us to run hard after you, to become the people we were created to be, to shine a, dark in a, uh, shine a light in a dark place. And God, as we come today, we take this next step on this journey as a church. We pray you just speak to us in powerful ways about what does it look like uh, to live out that light uh, as, as a place of love, a community of love in the midst of darkness. We pray this in your name. Amen. So uh, today we're continuing this journey that we've been on. Uh, it's, uh, uh, the name of the series is, for those of you who are new, called Scent, Piercing the Darkness. Uh, and it's actually the fourth uh, series in the, uh, an, a much longer series, fourth mini-series, a much longer series. It's called Scent. There's a study of one of the most important books in the Bible, the New Testament, called the book of Acts, which sort of documents, describes the rise uh, the rapid expansion and growth of, of the early movement of Jesus right after his resurrection for the next 30 years across the Roman Empire. So the last four weeks, or last few weeks, we've been watching as one of the key leaders of the movement, a man by the name of Paul, we call him the Apostle Paul, uh, that, that he's traveling uh, throughout the Roman Empire. He's traveling with eight of his colleagues who have come to Christ, uh, and they are traveling to the mother church, Jerusalem, where the whole movement of Jesus started, uh, which is largely Jewish church. And uh, they're, they're traveling with these kind of Gentile colleagues who've come to Christ, and they're, they're, uh, they're bringing a large financial gift, like an offering, to the poor Christ followers in Jerusalem. This is an act of love, what we call here at Rocky Peak, like an initiative for the poor. Um, uh, but on top of that, just to build bridges between this rapidly expanding movement that's trying to do the impossible of combining Gentiles and Jews in one new community under the leadership of King Jesus. And so... Uh, last week we saw that as Paul and his team were approaching Jerusalem, that there were several warnings given by the Holy Spirit that he was heading into harm's way. And so today we're going to see what happens as the story unfolds. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to Acts chapter 21. If you have apps, let's go ahead and turn them on. And we're going to pick it up at verse 17. So when we arrived at Jerusalem, remember Luke's the author, he's telling this story. When we arrived at Jerusalem... Uh, the, initially, it went really well. The brothers and sisters there at the church, uh, they, re- they received us warmly. So the next day, Paul and the rest of us, so this team of nine, uh, uh, we went to see James, who is the, the leader of the church. Uh, you may remember this, just that James has become the, the leader of the early church of Jerusalem. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the one who wrote the book of James in our New Testament. So same mother, Mary, different father, obviously. But uh, anyway... So they meet uh, James, and all the elders, the leaders of the church, are present. So Paul's going to uh, greet them, and he's going to report in detail what, is God, what God has done um, through, among the Gentiles through his ministry. So what, he's, he hasn't been to Jerusalem in five years. So he's giving them an update on all these journeys we've been tracing through 
Acts uh, of what God's been doing out in the Roman Empire, people coming to Christ, exciting stories. And of course, they're going to be very excited about this. But uh, they also want him to know, James wants him to know what God is doing here in Jerusalem. And it turns out that in the last five years since Paul's been there, many more thousands of Jewish people have come to Christ. And they, uh, most of them tend to be very conservative Jewish believers. The uh, code word for this that uh, Luke is going to use is that they are zealous for the law. Right? Now, uh, to understand what's going to happen today, we need to step back in time about eight years from this event. We need to go back to Acts 15. And we're going to, to turn there, but I'm just going to uh, do a quick review. If you were here in the series a while back in Acts 15, we saw that one of the biggest conflicts in the early movement of Jesus was the question, what does it take to be saved? And this question really became a heightened question when Gentiles, no Jewish background, started coming in the movement of Jesus. And so the question was, do they need to follow all the Old Testament like ritual laws? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to uh, follow all the food laws, the kosher laws? Do they need to worship on the Sabbath in order to be saved? And there were some Jews in the church of Jerusalem that were very conservative. If you remember, they were from the party of the Pharisees. And they were arguing, yeah, that basically it's great that the Gentiles want to become part of the Messiah's kingdom. But to do that, they need to convert to Judaism and kind of follow the law. And so this raised a big conflict. And so there was a major council at the church of Jerusalem. James was in charge of that proceedings. And so Paul was there. Barnabas was there. Peter was there. All the leaders of the church were there and discussing this big issue. And the more they discussed it, the more it became clear to them as the Holy Spirit led them is know that in order to be saved, you're not saved by kind of carrying out these specific works of the law, that you're saved by faith in Christ alone. And so the Gentiles don't need to follow all the Jewish laws. They just need to turn from their pagan idolatry, turn from their sexual immorality. Um, and, and so let's be sensitive to the Jews as we bring them together in one family in terms of eating meat, blood, sacrifice, idols, that'd be very, or, or just, uh, meat with blood, and that'd be gross to Jews. So let's be sensitive, but no, they, so they kind of settle this issue, right? And so now Paul is coming back to Jerusalem, and it's eight years since then, and what, uh, what James wants them to know is that there are a lot of believers who have come to Jesus that are kind of like those believers back in Acts 15 that are very conservative. They probably don't understand yet the freedom they have in Christ from the law, and, and so the reason this is going to be important is because James says, hey, there's a rumor going out around that Paul, that not only when you're out in the Roman Empire and you're teaching Gentiles what it takes to be saved, you're not only telling Gentiles they don't have to follow the law, but that you're telling Jewish people who are coming to the Messiah that they need to stop practicing the law. Or to be saved, you, you need to stop circumcising your kids and you stop eating kosher. Now, that was not true at all. As we'll see today, Paul could care less whether you would get circumcised or not or eat by kosher. As long as you're clear that you're not saved by doing that, as long as you're not trying to put that on everyone else, he was fine. If you, as a Jew, you, you want to circumcise your children, it's kind of part of your, your, your tradition, it's part of your culture, that was fine as long as you don't think that that saves you, right? So it wasn't true, but that was the rumor. Now, we know in the 50s, uh, this is taking place in 57 AD. We know in the 50s that Jerusalem was a political and patriotic powder keg. That there was just before this a major rebellion against Rome. And so all things Gentile were suspect. All things 
uh, any compromise between the Jewish state and kind of anything Gentile was very inflammatory. And so he said, this is a culture you're walking into. And so if you come in here, this is what they've heard. This is going to cause big problems. You're going to become public enemy number one. So here, we've got an idea for your life. We've got a plan for your life. And here's what we'd like you to do, Paul. We would like you to show that there's not true. We would like you to, to be very Jewish while you're here. So we would like you to go to the temple complex. Now remember, the temple complex is massive. Three football fields on one side, five football fields on the other, surrounded by a huge stone wall. It was more like a fortress than a church. We want you to go to the temple. We want you to take these four uh, Jewish Christ-following brothers, and they have recently uh, made a Nazarite vow from Numbers chapter 6. And it was all kinds of ways. You had to go to the priest. You had to do certain things, sign certain documents, cut your hair, not cut your hair. There's certain things you do. And so you, you had to pay a price for this, too. There was kind of a, a price for this vow. So they said, what we want you to do is we want you to go with them very publicly into the temple. We want you to go. We want you to purify yourself as a good Jew because you've been in Gentile lands and you're coming back now. So go through the purification, right? We want you to pay for uh, the, the vows and kind of go through all the documentation for these four Jewish brothers. And as, as a result, everyone will see that you're not anti-law, you're not anti-temple, you're not anti-nation, and this will help smooth things out, all right? The problem is, it's not going to go as planned. <laughs> so here we go. So, so we arrived in Jerusalem, verse 17. Uh, the brothers and sisters, they, they receive us warmly. But the next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, the leader, and the elders, and uh, we, we greeted them, and we reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles. Now, they probably also made this large financial gift at this point. Luke doesn't mention it, but he'll get back to it in chapter 24. And so when they heard this, when the Jewish leaders heard this, they praised God. They're excited to hear what God's doing in the Gentiles in the Roman world. And they said, but we want you to know what's going on here, too. They said, uh, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, you know, since you were here five years ago. All of them are, quote, here's the word, zealous for the law. That's right, code for like Pharisee approach to the law. And so they, they've all been informed, uh, here's the rumor, that you teach the Gentiles who live among, you teach the Jews who live among the Gentiles out in the Roman world, that you're teaching to turn away from Moses and you're telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. So what shall we do? <laughs> uh, anyway, and so this is a big problem. So uh, they'll certainly hear that you've come. This is going to cause problems. So, so do what we tell you, like a Jewish mother. Uh, do what we tell you. So there are four men who uh, are with us have made a vow. Now we believe this is the Nazarite vow from number six. So take these men, join in their purification rites. You go through the rites with them, the Jewish purification rites required by the law, and pay their expenses, which would be seen as an act of not only generosity, but like godliness, um, so that they can have their head shaved, which is part of the Nazarite vow. And you'd cut your hair. And so, um, they, so they're going to suggest it. That he goes, he says, then everyone will know there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Now, that's a little bit questionable. We'll come back later to that Paul's relationship to uh, to the law, but the point is they'll, they'll see that you're not anti-law, that these rumors are false. 
And so uh, as for the Gentile believers, and so now James is referring back to the Acts 15 decision of eight years earlier. As for them, we've already written to them about our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So James just wants them to know we're, not, we're clear on that. We're not going back on that. We're not, like, we're, we're good with all that. What we decided eight years ago, we're on board, but we just want to change this perception that you're anti-law uh, because it's, gonna, it's, it's creating a very dangerous situation. So uh, Paul says, great. So the next day, Paul takes them in, and he purifies himself along with them. So he goes through the Jewish purification rites required in the Old Testament law, and then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification were then. So he actually goes in the huge temple complex. He goes to the, the, priest, uh, the area of the temple where you meet with the priest. You document all this. You pay for all this. Uh, you get your receipt like the DMV or something. <laughs> and, uh, and, then, and the offering would be made for each of them. All right, so, so this, it's all set up. So this is a, the, now the best laid plans are about to go wrong. And here's what's going to happen. That Remember, temple huge, people from all over the world, Jewish people coming to worship. Well, about a week later, when this whole purification thing is supposed to come to an end, Paul's in the temple. And uh, he is spotted there by some Jews from Asia, the Roman province of Asia. Now, remember, the, the capital of the Roman province of Asia was Ephesus. You remember, Paul spent three years there sharing Jesus, very powerful. All of Ephesus heard about Jesus. All of the Roman province of Asia heard about Jesus. Very effective ministry. But in the process, you remember, uh, the apostle Paul became public enemy number one in terms of Jews in Ephesus. There were many plots against his life to kill him while he was there. So now some of those Jews who couldn't get him there are in Jerusalem, and they see him at the temple. Like, there he is. And on top of that, they had seen him around the city with these eight Gentile converts. And, uh, and so they put two and two together. You know, Paul was always teaching that, that God has come to create a new temple. He's going to bring Jews and Gentiles together in this new temple of God. They put two and two together, and they assume that Paul has done the unthinkable. That he has brought a Gentile, a specific, that they reckon, there's two of these guys from Ephesus, one was named Trophimus, that they had brought Trophimus into one of the inner courts of the temple ground. Now remember, the temple itself was just a building that was just part of the complex. It wasn't like the whole complex. The complex was huge. Scholars tell us as many as 100,000 people could be inside the complex during holy days. And so there were different parts of this out external uh, open air courts. And the first court you would come into is you come in with the court of the Gentiles. And this, you could be a Jew, Gentile, man, woman, didn't matter. anyone could come into the court of the Gentiles. But at a certain point, as you, as you got closer to the temple, to the presence of God, you would hit a wall that was four and a half feet high and it was a stone wall, and on it was inscribed this, no Gentiles pass this point on pain of death. And so this was enforced by Rome. And so it was a way of saying, hey, you might come to the God of Israel, but you're not really in. You can't really come. And so what they thought had happened, they assumed they saw Paul. They'd seen him in the city with Trophimus. They assumed Paul had done the unthinkable. He had brought Trophimus into that area, which would be a capital crime. And so they're going to start a riot. 
And to picture this, again, we need to picture the Middle East today in an area maybe that's a, it's a, kind of a Muslim crowd where someone has criticized Muhammad or Islam, and it's going crazy. That's kind of the emotion you need to bring to this scene. All right, so here we go. So when the seven days, verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, they saw Paul at the temple, and they stirred up the whole crowd, and they seized him, and they said, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone, everywhere against our people, the Jews, against our law, law of Moses, and against this place, the temple. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple, and he's defiled this holy place. And uh, they'd previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and they, so they assumed that Paul brought him into the temple. Well, so this now, the whole city, Jerusalem's got hundreds of thousands of people. This thing, you know, this is going to rapidly gonna spin out of control. The whole city is aroused. People come running from all directions. They grab Paul. They seize him. They drag him from the temple. They immediately, the gates were shut. And uh, they're trying to kill him. They start to beat him. Uh, but news reaches the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. Now, at the northwest corner of this massive temple complex, northwest corner, there is a very famous fortress. It's a military fortress. It's called the Antonio Fortress. Uh, this is where Jesus was arrested. It's where Jesus was tried. It's where Jesus was um, flogged. Um, it's at the northwest corner, so what happens, the reason it's there is because Jerusalem's always in danger of a revolt. And so if a revolt's going to start, it's large, often going to start at the temple and often during uh, these pilgrimage feasts, like Passover and things like that. So we're, remember, we're, we're in Pentecost time right now. And so it's built up there so that they can have access directly down inside the temple courts so that in, the, in case of a riot, they're able to attack quickly. Because if you're a Roman commander, this is your big fear. That there will be a revolt, because this is, not, this is not just theory, there were many messianic revolts at this time. In fact, uh, next week we'll see that one had just happened uh, uh, recently, led by uh, an Egyptian Jew, and uh, we know this from secular history from Josephus, and so that'll come into play in this story. So anyway, uh, in verse 33, the, um, uh, in verse 32, he, he's going um, he's, he's to lead the charge, he's so concerned. So... Uh, uh, verse 32, he's at once going to take some of his officers, his soldiers, he's going to run down into the crowd. And when the rioters see the commander and his soldiers, they, st- they stop beating Paul. So they're already beating Paul. Remember the prophecies about if you go to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen? Well, here we go. And so the commander uh, comes up and he arrests him and he orders him to be bound with two chains, li- likely between two Roman guards. And, uh, and then he uh, asked who he was and what he'd done. So he's trying to figure out, like, what's going on? Now, we're going to see next week, he assumes he's this Egyptian terrorist, essentially, who had recently led a rebellion, an Egyptian, a kind of Jewish-type terrorist, led a rebellion, but he had escaped, and he, he's assuming he's coming back. Um, and so some in the crowd, it's kind of going crazy. They're shouting one thing, some another. They don't even know why they're there, half of them. Uh, and since the commander couldn't get the truth because of the uproar, he orders that Paul's going to be taken up into the barracks, into the... Antonio Fortress. And so when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the, the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers, likely above his, their heads. And the crowd that kept, was, kept shouting, get rid of him, kill, kill him, right? So next week, we're going to see what happens. Next week, we're going to see like, uh, okay, what happens next. And typical of Paul, he's like, awesome, great crowd, let me speak. Um, so this is really great. You know, it's thousands of people. What an opportunity. Um, so uh, he's just been beat up. He, uh, you know. 
Uh, but uh, anyways, we'll see that next week. But today, I want to focus on an issue that is highlighted in this passage that's incredibly important for us as followers of Jesus. It has to do with uh, our relationship as modern-day New Testament Christ followers with the Old Testament law of Israel. This was sort of the issue. This was the issue at Acts 15 that we talked about months ago. This was the issue here when Paul comes into town, how Paul is being perceived, and James says, hey, let's change those perceptions. Um, and I think it's, it's going to surprise us. Some of the things we're seeing are actually going to uh, uh, surprise us. But today it has implications not only for us in terms of how do we relate to, say, Old Testament law, but how do we kind of relate to lots of things in the Christian community in terms of what it looks like to follow Jesus today. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Freedom 101, the principles. And, and what I want to do is start with kind of two big picture principles and then uh, come back with one point, pointed question at the end. All right, so here we go. The first thing that jumps out to me today is that uh, Christ calls us to freedom. Uh, this is what James and Paul agreed on. Uh, this is what the early church had agreed on back in Acts 15. When this whole issue of Gentiles started coming to the church, it raised the issue, wait, how are you saved? Like, what does it take to be saved? And so they had met back in Acts 15, and they'd raised this issue, and well, do they need to convert? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to follow the Jewish laws, the ritual laws? And and so they really wrestled with this in the Holy Spirit. They came to clarity that, no, that that's not the case, that we're saved not by our performance, but by Christ's performance, his death for us, right? So they got clear on this, that as followers of Jesus, that we are free from these Old Testament kind of ritual laws that played such an important role in the life of Israel and in the life of the New Testament. We miss this sometimes, but like at the Maccabean Revolt that took place about a, a less than 200 years before this, where the Maccabeans revolted against Rome in Israel, I mean, the Jews were giving their lives uh, rather than not circumcising their children. They were giving their lives rather than not eating pork. They said, no, we will follow God regardless. And so it's hard for us to even understand how revolutionary this was that like, oh, wait, we don't have to do that anymore, but God was so clear, like how does that work? And so this was big time news flash. And as the early church wrestled through this, they came to clarity on this issue. As followers of Jesus, we no longer have to follow those laws that were very clear that God required of his people Israel in the Old Testament. So like in Acts chapter 15, uh, here's what Peter says about this. He says in that, that council, he says, we believe that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's his death for us, right? Nothing that we do. It's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we, and in context, he means we Jews, okay? That we Jews are saved, and just as they are, the they are the Gentiles. So, so Peter, hey, we grew up with all this stuff, but we've come to realize that we're saved not by our performance, our keeping of laws, but by what Jesus has done by the grace of Jesus. We're saved the same way they're saved. And so everyone got really clear. And so this becomes an important message for the Apostle Paul. It's really like a life message because what would happen is he would go out in the Roman Empire, as we've seen starting churches, he would share this message uh, both Jews and Gentiles would come to Christ, but as we've seen, more Gentiles than Jews. And he would share this message of salvation by faith in Christ alone. But what would happen is after he would leave, 
some Jewish, uh, kind of very conservative, we call them Judaizers, would come along afterwards and they would tell these new converts, that's awesome you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but to truly be saved, you need to convert. You need to be circumcised. The same thing was happening in Acts 15. And so as a result of this, Paul would often have to write letters back to his churches saying, no, 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 remember what we taught. So for example, in Galatians, here's a good example. In Galatians 5, Paul writes back to these believers and after spelling out the whole argument, he says, it is for what? It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And he's talking about freedom from these Old Testament laws. So what Paul would say is that the law is a good thing. The law is a beautiful thing. He said the the law was given to Israel as a gift, like a candle to lead us toward the Christ. He said, but now that the Christ has come, we've entered into this new era And he said, we no longer need the candle, just like after the dawning of a new day, you you don't longer need the candlelight. We're in a new era, right? And so Paul was really big on this. And this is what James agreed. Uh, James agrees, uh, the leader of the church in Jerusalem agreed. They all agree on this with with Paul, right? So we're on the same page. But having said that, that as followers of Jesus, we're free from having to obey the law. Here's what I want you to catch. And this is what we often miss. That true freedom means that we are free to follow the law or not to follow the law, these ritual laws, based on however the Holy Spirit's leading us and whatever produces the fastest growth and maturity and creates a passion for God and a love for people. Are, are you with me? So a freedom, and this is why for Paul, he's like, if you're Jewish and that's your tradition and you want to celebrate Hanukkah, and you want to celebrate Passover, and you want to celebrate, you want to circumcise your kids, you want to eat kosher, go for it. As long as you understand that's not what saves you, and as long as you don't put it on everyone else, they're going to be a good follower of the Messiah, you need to do this, you see? So the freedom that Paul's talking about, it's a freedom to do it or to not do it, whatever helps you grow. Now, this surprises us, I think. Because honestly, I think if most of us today went back 2,000 years in time and we hung out with Paul for a week, we would be shocked. We would tend to think that he is like a good American Christ follower with his NIV Bible, right? uh, you know, listens to you know, Christian radio. Uh, we would think, I think we would be shocked at how Jewish he was. Like, I think it's very likely Paul would probably say, he'd probably go to prayer at 9, 12, and 3 every day. Very likely. The Jewish times of prayer. Uh, We see this in Acts. Like, for example, there in Acts 20, and I I didn't make a big, or Acts 18 on your note sheet. I didn't make a big deal at the time because I knew we'd come back to this. But in Acts 18, um, when Paul starts, uh, you know, his his kind of uh, trip back home, he leaves Corinth. He's been there for a couple years. And Luke gives us this little, almost a throwaway sidebar comment, but I want you to notice it. It says, uh, Paul stayed on at Corinth for some time, and before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. All right, huh? So as American Christ, we just kind of read over that as if it never happened, like, that's weird, we just keep going. Um, but most scholars believe that what he's doing is he's taking the same vow these four young men in Jerusalem are taking. It's a Nazarite vow. Very specific about when you do it, how to do it, 
how you start it, how you end it, right? All this thing. And it has to do with cutting your hair. Remember Samson in the Old Testament, not cut, he's a Nazarite, don't cut your hair. Uh, so there was, okay, so, that, so we read that and it's like, I don't know, does that strike you as a little odd? Like, for example, if I came in next week and I had my head shaved, all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're, you're like, and you're like, oh, great. First you change your name. And now you said, we know it's a midlife crisis. Where's the red Corvette? Uh, and the, the new blonde. You know, it's like, where, like, you are losing it. And, and if I said to you, like, oh, yeah, uh, you know, what's going on is that uh, God's just been doing some things in my life. I just took a Nazarite vow, and so I just shaved my head. You'd be looking at me. You'd be calling Dave Cox. You'd be calling the elders. You'd be calling Dre. It's like, is he okay? Like, it's kind of, he's been a little weird right So, uh, and you'd be, be like, oh, what's going on? He's going back under the law? Like, what's wrong with him? And here's the apostle Paul, the apostle of freedom, and he's taking a vow because he feels like it'll help him follow Jesus. Now, interesting, uh, as you go on in Acts, you see this again. You find out that Paul seems to be planning his travel itinerary. Like, he's going to Jerusalem, right? We just saw him. But he seems to be planning it around uh, some of the major pilgrim feasts. You know, there's three every year, and Passover, unleavened bread's one, and Pentecost is one, tabernacles in the fall, it's about to happen about a week. And so uh, in Acts chapter uh, 20, uh, or uh, yeah, Acts chapter 20, it says um, uh, in the first one, verse 6, he says, we sailed from Philippi after the feast of what? Unleavened, unleavened bread. So we did, we did unleavened bread, Passover, and then we, we sailed after that. And then look at the next verse, a few uh, little verses down. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he's in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Now, what if I started talking like that? Hey, we're in this current series. I know it's going on forever, but I want to have it done by Passover because I want to start a new one by Pentecost. You're like, what? Right? And so often we, we miss this. And what I want you to catch is that for Paul, that he was a good Jew. And his issue wasn't at all, uh, you know, anti-law or whatever. He just wanted to be clear that if you want to carry on these traditions, you want to celebrate these feasts, that's fine, as long as they're not salvation, as long as it's not the path to salvation. So you're free. So here's why I judge that as followers of Jesus, we're free to follow or not to follow how whatever helps us to grow the fastest to become like Jesus and to love other people well. Are you with me? Now, that's a new concept of freedom, isn't it? Like, let me give you an example. Um, I've got a friend here at Rocky Peak, um, and uh, he celebrates the Sabbath. Now, I'm not saying, like, he just takes a day off every week and calls it the Sabbath, like a lot of us do, right? Uh, he celebrates the Sabbath. He and his family, every Friday night at sundown, they celebrate Sabbath. And, and they... Uh, they, uh, they do Shabbat meal and the whole, and they follow Sabbath, day of rest and all. And so uh, the thing is, he's not Jewish at all. As far as I know, he doesn't have any Jewish blood in him. But what happened is he just loves Jesus. And years ago, he started kind of studying the nation of Israel and their history and all things. And he just kind of fell in love with all things Jewish. And he just loved this idea. And so, so they start practicing the Sabbath, right? And so... The question is, is that okay? Like if he was in your life group and you said, hey, you want to get to go Friday and see a movie? No, it's Sabbath. 
You're like, huh? Are you, are you Jewish? No. No, just, wait, I'd love to, but what happened to Shabbat? What happened to Shabbat that day? Yeah, Shabbat dinner. And uh, so I can't, can't do that. And you'd be like, you'd probably be going like, is this okay? Is this like, but here's the thing. As long as he doesn't see that as a path to salvation, which he doesn't, and as long as he doesn't put that on everyone else in his life group, that everyone needs to do this, then of course there's freedom. And what he has found in his own personal life is he just loves doing this. The rhythm it creates in their week, the family time it's created, he's just felt like it's an incredible blessing that's brought great richness to his family. Now here's the thing. What is true about, say, Sabbath is true about so many areas of the Christian life. You know, as followers of Jesus, we have freedom. We'll talk about this more in a minute, but we have freedom in how we pursue God. We have freedom in the area of spiritual disciplines. We have freedom in the area of lifestyle uh, choices. We'll talk more about that in a minute. We'll have free, we have freedom in so many of these, what we call secondary areas, and you're free in Christ to do whatever helps you grow the most. So, for example, this is what I've often seen in the Christian community. We are suspect of any kind of discipline because we equate discipline with legalism. And so what happens is often we take a very unintentional approach to life. And when someone says, you know what, I'm going to stop watching TV in order that I grow or I'm going to start fasting once a week, we tend to go, is that even okay? That kind of sounds legalistic. But the reality is, as followers of Jesus, we have freedom to do or not do whatever helps us grow in our passion for Jesus and our love for others. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's go on. We're going to tease this out a little bit more. So number two is that now true freedom leads to love. This is what Paul will teach us, that true freedom leads to love. And so as you study Paul's writings, and we'll see it today in this passage, that what Paul will, will teach is we, we say that, that there are different, there's kind of certain areas of following Jesus we would call our primary issues. And there are certain areas that are like secondary issues. So like primary issue. How a person gets saved is primary. Do you have to follow the Old Testament law? That's a primary issue. You don't, you don't compromise on things like that. In fact, Paul in his letter to the Galatians in his opening chapter, he'll say if anyone comes to you teaching a different gospel than the one that we delivered, uh, let him be eternally condemned. So it's not like, yeah, whatever you think on whatever. No, there's certain issues that are primary. Who Jesus is, how salvation works, the authority of God's word in our life, the core moral conduct, hey, the, the sexual code of the New Testament, right? These are like primary issues. We don't sacrifice. We never compromise on primary issues. But what Paul will teach us on secondary issues, these issues where people who love Jesus and love his word have honest disagreements, they don't really relate to your salvation or whether you're a follower of Jesus, uh, it could be a wide variety of things. He says on these secondary issues, here's what he says, it's actually, it's more important, catch this, and this is kind of radical, it's more important in these secondary issues that we love and accept one another than we're Right? Did you hear that? <laughs> it's more important that we love and accept one. Even if someone is wrong, then we're right. And so, so for example, yeah, yeah, right, so we'll get more of that later. So, uh, 
So, for example, in the early church, like Romans 14, for those of you in your life group uh, this week, and you do a, a life, our life group study, you'll study this in Romans 14 and 15. If you're not, you may want to just do it on your own because it's a, a powerful principle, especially the times we live in. But in Romans 14, Paul gives an example like this. Like in the early church of Jesus, imagine how tough this was. You've got Jews, conservative Jews in the Roman Empire coming to Jesus who have, have followed Torah their whole life. Sabbath is like their whole life. They're kosher their whole life. They may have never even associated or eaten a meal with a Gentile in their whole life. They circumcision, this, their forefathers died rather than not circumcision. This is who they are. They come into the church of Jesus and they're sitting next to someone who is a Gentile who three weeks ago was having sex at the temple of Aphrodite as part of their worship. Whoa. And they're coming together now as followers of Jesus, totally different worldviews. This Jewish worldview has always been those Gentile dogs. They're so immoral. This view has always been so anti-Semitic, crazy Jews with all their laws, what they eat and can't eat and Sabbath. And now you're sitting next to church in a home church, a home fellowship. Can you imagine how difficult that was? And so what would naturally happen is that, say, the Jewish believers, more conservative, they look down. You guys don't take the word of God seriously. You don't follow the law. You don't do Sabbath. You don't... And they don't understand their freedom in Christ yet. These people are looking over here. It's like, hey, what are you? Like, you're still walking by the candle. The light has shown. Like, wake up. You're so old school. We don't need to do that anymore. Don't you remember what Paul said? And so they would tend to criticize and condemn. And so into that setting, Paul writes an amazing chapter in chapter 14 and 15 of Romans. And here's what he says. He says, you know, on many of these issues, and like two of their big ones, for example, that he, he calls out there, would be like a secondary issue. What day you worship on and what do you eat? Is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols or non-kosher? Is that okay or not? Two of their big secondary issues, right? And so he says, you know, on these issues, there really is a right and wrong. He says, as followers of Jesus, we have freedom, like we saw in number one. He says, but in these secondary issues, it is more important that you love and accept one another even if your brother is wrong, that you're right in everything. And we have a great example today in this passage in Acts 21. Because what, what happens? Paul comes to the city, right? James pulls him aside. Hey, listen, we got a big problem here. Here's the rumor about you. You're anti-law, you're anti-God, you're anti-temple, you're anti-nation. And so, hey, would you, would you do this thing? Would you go to the temple? Would you just you know, you go big-time Jewish while you're here, you know? Hey, go, do the law, do the command, go to the priest, go th- make sure, do it all, actually pay for it, which is very expensive. Show everyone the reality that you're not teaching this, that you're not anti-Israel. And you know, I think if it were me, I might feel a little pushback at that. First of all, I'm tired of always being slandered about what I'm teaching when I'm not teaching that at all. This happened to Paul all the time. Think of Romans. Paul says, well, what then? Should we keep on sinning since we're forgiven by grace? He said, that's what everyone says I'm teaching. He's like, everywhere you go, he's teaching with slander, twisted, turn. And so I could see him saying, like, no, that's not what I teach, and I'm not going to do this thing. Uh, I don't want to come across like that. He said, hey, I'm afraid if I do that, they're going to misunderstand the message that God has given me, that we truly are free. And so I could see him saying, no, I'm not going to do that. But that's not what Paul does. 
What Paul says is, hey, are we clear here on the primary issue in Jerusalem? And the answer is yes. How are we saying? James was very clear. We've already agreed on this eight years ago, that we're saved by grace and not by these actions. He said, I'm clear on that. The elders of our church are clear on that. The church, we're clear. Now, these younger believers, they might be so clear, but we're clear. And so Paul's like, he's not afraid of the church of Jerusalem falling into heresy because they have strong leadership. He knows they're clear. So as long as we're clear on the primary issue, then Paul is more than willing to compromise on the secondary issue. And so he's willing to go and to go through this process. Why? Because he loves these new believers. They may not understand all their freedom in Christ. They may have a lot of things wrong, but he just loves them. And he wants them to grow. And he doesn't want to do anything that would slow down the movement of Jesus or break up the unity of the body. And so here's what Paul says, is that in these secondary areas, that one of the marks of maturity is that we're, catch this, willing to give up our freedom for the sake of others. That if we're in a situation that we're willing to give up our freedom, hold our tongue, not have to argue about it, not be right, in order to build the unity of the church and to promote the, the other people's growth. Are, are you with me in that? Powerful. And so, for example, on, on your note sheet in Romans 15, after he lays out this whole argument, he says, here's how we need to approach it. He says, we who are strong, now in context, what he means by strong is those who are clear-sighted spiritually. Those who understand that as followers of Jesus, we don't have to follow all the Old Testament Jewish ritual laws. In this path, that's what it means to be strong. We're clear in that. We're saved by faith alone that, you know, as he'll say somewhere else, food doesn't bring us closer to God or take us further away from God. Uh, like he's, that, you're clear on that, that you were saved by Christ's performance, not by our performance. That's what he means by the strong. And so he says, we who are strong ought to bear with, like be patient with, in other words, the catches, the failings of the weak. So Paul is not saying, hey, it doesn't really matter in these secondary areas. There's no right or wrong. He's not saying that at all. He's not, in, in these cases that they're fighting, there actually was a right and wrong. He said, this is a failing of the weak. Like they they don't really understand yet the truth, the reality, the gospel, and all its implications. They're not clear. It's, it's a failing. But he says, we who are strong ought to be patient with, bear with the failings, the wrongs of the weak, and not just to please ourselves. And he says, so we, he says, we need to accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So let me ask you this. Whether you've been a Christian two months, two years, 32 years, 82 years, let me ask you this. Have you ever changed your mind in a significant area of spiritual life? Anyone ever changed your mind on anything? Okay, not really. Okay, well, I don't know how. It's amazing. That must be a huge burden being perfect. I, I don't know. Um, but I know it's 9 o'clock. You're probably like, hey, this is a trick question. Where is it going? Um, that, I want to raise my hand. Oh, gotcha. No, uh, no, this is, uh, hey, if you look back at your life as a follower, like, what did you say? You look back and say, hey, yeah, I, when I first came to you, I thought this and this and that. I just didn't fully understand, you know? And it could be on lots of different issues. But you say, you know, as, as you mature in Jesus, as you learn the word, as you got better teaching, whatever it was, you'd be like, oh, man, that was really a wrong view. They're like, this is right. And what Paul says is, I want you to accept one another as Christ accepted you. 
So think back to when you first came a Christian. Did Jesus wait until you were clear on every issue? You know? Hey, who are you voting for in the election? Uh, Sorry, wrong answer. I can't accept you. uh, Yeah. Uh, Hey, are, are you with me? Jesus... He accepted, as long as we're willing to trust him, he took us in with all of our wrong opinions, all of our wrong views, and he loved us. And he said, over time, we're going to grow here. But in the meantime, I'm just going to love and accept you. We're going to enter into a relationship, and then over time, you're going to grow. And Paul says, that's what it looks like to be a strong believer, is that we don't have to correct everyone in our life group. We don't have to make sure everyone matches up with us on every secondary issue before we have fellowship or love them. We have to argue over that. We will love and accept one another even if we think they're wrong on these secondary areas if that will help them grow faster. So this leads to then a very pointed question. Yeah, (laughs) I told you. I told you, right? This is going to get, we're going to get more of that as we go along from some. Um, uh, But um, so here in the next part of your next is freedom, the question I've got a question for you. It's a hard-hitting question. It's going to make you a little nervous. But it goes like this. Uh, in, your, in your life, are, are you strong or weak? Like according to Paul's definition of who's strong and who's weak, would you say you're a stronger believer? Or would you say you're more towards the end of the spectrum, a weaker believer? And this question really has two sides to it. Let's start with the first side is, as a follower of Jesus, are you growing in your clarity all the time that your relationship with Jesus is not based on your performance or man-made rules or Old Testament laws, that your core relationship with Jesus is based on his grace? Like, are you growing in that? Um, as a follower of Jesus, are you learning more and more the difference between the clear teaching of the New Testament, like the primary teaching of God's word, and secondary issues, man-made rules, man-made traditions, maybe even good things, like good traditions, are you learning the difference, and are you learning that as a follower of Jesus, you have freedom from man-made rules, or this one, that you just need to listen to the Holy Spirit and do what helps you grow, are you, are you, or are, are you, do you struggle with a lot of oughts that as you look at it, honestly, they're not really even in the word, they're just kind of Man-made rules, religious traditions. Paul would say that the more, the more that you realize your freedom, the stronger you are. Okay? So that's where we start. Like, are you strong or weak? But then here's the, the second angle on this. And then the, the question will be, how do you respond to someone in your life who claims to be a follower of Jesus, but you have significant differences of opinion on secondary issues? Like, for example, in your life group. Uh, maybe in your extended family, on the job. So for example, uh, these could be, let me, let me give you like three boxes of types of secondary issues, right? So for example, um, let's talk about um, kind of doctrinal issues. So there's certain issues that are primary issues, right? Who Jesus is, the word, the training, all those things, right? But there's second, secondary things. So like if you're in a life group and someone has a different view from you on a, a predestination and free will, how do you respond to that? If someone's in your life group and they have a different um, perspective, a different uh, opinion of you on spiritual gifts, what gifts operate today? Maybe gift of tongues, prophecy, healing. I mean, a different point of view on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and how that 
works. They have a different view on the second coming of Jesus. Not that he's coming, but how and when he's coming. If they have a different appeal on end times and the role of Israel in the world today. If they have a different opinion on creationism, we all agree as followers of Jesus that God created, but they have a different view on how God created or how long God created. And they're old earth or they're young earth, and it's different from you. Uh, they have a, a different uh, issue, uh, uh, a different opinion on women in ministry. These are all great examples of secondary issues. The question is, when you come across a believer like that at your job, in your life group, your relatives, how do you respond to that? Even if you think they're wrong, do you you love and accept them, or do you feel like you have to correct them until you can have fellowship? Let's talk about lifestyle issues. Uh, It's almost Halloween. I know believers that, hey, we don't celebrate Halloween. It's the devil's holiday. I know other believers like, are you serious? It's my favorite holiday of the year. I get to dress up and eat candy. I just love that, right? (laughs) Uh, You know, some believers are going to be like, hey, we're free in Christ to drink alcohol as long as it's not to excess. Others know we shouldn't do that. Too many ills in society caused by that. Uh, some people, it's like, I don't think we should mark our bodies, and other people are like, really, my whole body's a tattoo. Uh, you know, it's, we're going to have different lifestyle issues, right? Entertainment, just Christian music, or all, you know, only, secular, only Christian, or no secular, or, or whatever. Uh, entertainment choice, whatever. these are secondary issues, right? These are issues, not to say they're not important, not even saying that on some issues there may not be a right or wrong, but what Paul says is the mark of strength is how you respond to people who hold a different view. Now, let me ask the, the, most, uh, uh, the most explosive one. What about politically? <laughs> hey, we live in a culture right now. We're in election season. Um, emotions are running high. How do you respond to a fellow brother or sister in Christ who, who says they're going to vote for someone different in these elections than you think you should? How do you respond to that? Do you love and accept them? Or do you feel like you have to tear them down and correct them and break the relationship over that issue? Let's take it one step further. What about social media? Sometimes we act as if you can say anything on social media because it's not real. Let me tell you, it's real. And so how do you respond in these Because here's what Paul would say. Here's how a strong believer responds. Here's how a weak believer responds. The question is, how strong or how weak are you? Let's pray. God, we come and we live in uh, challenging times. And as followers of Jesus, we're all trying to figure this out, Father, just like, what does it look like to follow? What does it look like to be faithful? What do we stand up for? What do we not? How do we do that? And so they're difficult times. And so, God, we just thank you that today the Apostle Paul just kind of points the direction. Here's how you do it. You stand up for the things that are right and good and true. There's certain non-negotiables. These secondary areas we're going to love and accept even when we think they're wrong. And it's by our love that the world will know us. And so, God, in the midst of uh, trying times, incre- incredibly, increasingly dark times, God, we know that our unity and our love is what will light the way. And so, God, we pray that as we pursue you, 
as a church, as we pursue you in our own lives, we pray that you would take us deeper into your love. That as a result, we could go deeper into sharing that love, acceptance of others, even when we see differently unimportant issues, but secondary issues. And God, we pray as we come into worship now, as we pursue you in worship, as we bring our tithes, our offerings, we pray you'd use these to build a place that just sends a message of freedom and the ultimate freedom, the freedom of love uh, to a world that desperately needs to hear it. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with me? And oh God, that's our prayer for a greater glimpse. I think of Paul in Ephesians just praying that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened, that we might know the, the width and the breadth and the depth and the height, the love of God, that we might be filled all this fullness. And God, as we, we talk today about the love of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ that loved us when we were enemies and accepted us when we had the very basic beginnings of understanding. God, we pray that we would live out that life of love as a community here, loving and accepting one another, not waiting until we all line up on every issue or all see perfectly on anything, but we, we understand that to love one another in these secondary areas is more important than being right. And that we thus create a community that's holding forth the gospel as a star in a dark night. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 You know, I, I was thinking last night as I was kind of doing this final word, and I never really planned those, and so they're often different from service to service. And uh, what struck me last night was that the Apostle Paul said that in Philippians chapter 2, he says to the church of, of Philippi, they're having some interpersonal squabbles. He says, you know what? You need to do all things without grumbling or complaining. Amen. He says, so that you can be like a star on a dark night as you, in a unified way, you hold out the word of life to a dark world. Uh, you know, in a time like this, a nation that's becoming increasingly divided and hatred is the standard of the day. You know, as followers of Jesus, if we're going to be a light in a dark place, it's going to be because we stand unified, loving one another, even though we're different sometimes. It's that that sets us apart. Uh, what Jesus said in John 15 is, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you'll bear much fruit. But he goes on, he said, this is how you abide, by keeping my commandments. And then he went on and said, and this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And Paul today is helping us to understand what does it look like to love one another practically? It means to love one another when we think we're wrong on these secondary issues. Primary issues, yeah, someone's living in sexual sin, there's greed, there's fraud, there's heresy, we go after that. We can't tolerate that. That'll tear the whole body down. But in these secondary issues, he said, hey, the way you love one another as, as God has loved us is by accepting one another as Christ has accepted us. And so as we move into this new era we are as a nation, I think this is how the, the movement of Jesus will separate itself out, is we will be culturally relevant, but we will be radically distinct. And that radical distinction comes not just on our moral stance, it comes on the love that we have for one another. We need to show the world another way of being the human race. Amen. 
And we need to be this new community of Jesus that says, this is how it's supposed to be. And if we don't love and accept one another, then we just become another divisive group in our nation that is just a power block, a political power block like any others. And there is no distinction between us and the world. It is as we love and accept one another, starting with our friendships, our life groups, our co-workers, our relatives, that say, you know what? Maybe there is something to this message of Jesus because it's true. I have never seen a group of people that love one another like these people love one another. Amen? Amen. God bless you. See you next week.